This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by Kathy's Vacuum and Sewing. For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, find out about a newly opened center in Tucson that's dedicated to helping those diagnosed with Lewy body dementia. Emma Gibson reports on the latest developments regarding the Pasquayaki tribe's efforts to secure a permanent early voting site on its reservation. And did you know that NPR and broadcasting legend Neil Conan was also a resident of the Marvel Universe? Find out how Conan went from being a lifelong comic book fan to an ally of the uncanny X-Men. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. This month marks the seventh anniversary of the death of Robin Williams. It was the result of a degenerative condition called Lewy body dementia. For many of us, it may have been our first time hearing about the disease. Lewy body dementia is the second most common type of dementia, and it's the root cause of as much as 15% of all cases in the nation. Rising awareness of Lewy body dementia's severity and a generous private donation has led to the creation of the J. Oren Edson Family Louis Body Dementia Center, which opened this month in Tucson as a new wing of the Banner Alzheimer's Institute. I spoke with Dr. Alan Anderson, the center's director, and started by asking him to clear up a common misunderstanding. The term body dementia brings to mind conditions like body dysphoria, but they are very different, as Dr. Anderson explains. It's all in understanding what the name really means. So Lewy bodies are the actual intracellular abnormalities that occur in Lewy body dementia. They are termed a body because they're this area in the cell, and they're abnormal because they're abnormal form of congealed proteins that are in the cell. And it's somewhat similar like in Alzheimer's disease where you have amyloid plaques, although they're outside the cell, you also have tau uh, neurofilament fibers inside the cell in Alzheimer's. Well, these are Lewy bodies, and, and they were defined by a Dr. Lewy, you know, many, many years ago uh, under the microscope. So that's kind of how that got its name. But yeah, it has nothing to do with um, body type. That's something that is kind of confusing, I think, for the layperson who hears it. How exactly is it that these Lewy bodies can become a cause of death for a person? Because they accumulate in the cells, and then as a result, they lead to the death of cells. And as more and more cells in the brain die, and and this expands throughout the brain, uh, they shut down many functions that the brain controls. And eventually, you know, people become bedridden if they don't die from other causes, because they just don't stop. They keep... Uh, happening in more and more cells in the brain and more and more regions. And eventually when they shut down parts of the brain that control essential functions, they will lead to death. Again, that's if that doesn't occur from some other cause before that time. 
Can you contrast for us the ratio between the amount of impact that Lewy bodies have on a person's mind as opposed to their physical bodies? So essentially, much of the effect is still on the brain. And I say that because when we see these motor symptoms of Lewy body disease uh, that would include the Parkinsonian features, that's an effect that is originating in brain cells that control movement. So it impacts both cognitive abilities and motor skills. Correct. There are many types of doctors, um, Dr. Anderson. So for our audience, can you let us know if you yourself have ever been in the position of breaking the diagnosis of Lewy body dementia to another person? Yes, I've had the chance in many occasions. And you get interesting responses. And I say that because many, many people as they get older and note cognitive changes have the fear of having Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and sometimes actually when you give them a different diagnosis, whether that be in this case, you know, this is dementia with Lewy bodies or frontotemporal dementia, they almost have a relief because there's so much knowledge and press about how horrible a disease Alzheimer's is. But the reality is that uh, dementia with Lewy bodies is actually more profoundly impactful in a negative way to patients and families. And it, truly that resides in the fact that it has a greater influence on a combination of features, not just cognition, but as you mentioned, cognition, motor symptoms, and a much higher percentage of emotional disturbance in many cases. I dread to think about the experience of having to break that news to a person and to perhaps their loved ones. But I do wonder, what are the first questions that people ask? Often they might ask, well, well how is that different than Alzheimer's? And so just to, to mention that one of the Lewy body dementia disorders typically gets misdiagnosed by many doctors as being Alzheimer's because it's, by definition, it starts with cognitive features, not with the typical movement disturbance. The movement disturbance comes on later in dementia with Lewy bodies. It comes on early in Parkinson's disease dementia, both of which are part of Lewy body dementias, but have, of course, different presentations in the timing of the onset of the motor deficits. What's the beginning of treatment for this condition, and what kind of a prognosis can you give for a person long-term? In every patient I would ever see with this disease, I then turn to a discussion of what can we do to help manage this, uh, because we want to make sure that we do the best to keep the optimal functioning of the patient, best quality of life, and an important role in this disease is to, to try to keep people in their community setting, which is what patients and families generally want. And so we, we look at all the aspects of this disease. Are there things we need to do to shore up some of the motor symptoms? Uh, and there are medications that could be used to help to reduce some of the Parkinsonian features if indeed that is an important need at the moment. So then we look at the cognitive issues and we look at both uh, things that we might do with pharmacotherapy or medications, as well as things we might do that are equally and maybe in cases more important, working with the patient, the spouse, or other family members to manage this disease and navigate through the disease. And so even in, in an appointment where I'm discussing treatment and I'll talk about medications, I also want to talk about the non-medication or non-pharmacologic approaches that, that can really provide some great benefit. 
this disease often, for instance, causes some very distressing symptoms. And one of the, the core features of the disease can be very prominent visual hallucinations, which, of course, would be very distressing to most family members as well as to the patient. Uh, and uh, another very core symptom is a very unusual sleep disturbance called REM behavioral sleep disorder where they act out dreams. And so we want to make sure that we approach some of those issues because those can be really some of the more concerns, uh, you know, greater than even the cognitive changes, right? If people are hallucinating or or uh, beating up their spouse in bed at night. And so we want to make sure that we cover the cognition, the motor, uh, the behavioral, the, the psychological features because of the fact that this disease affects both mind and body. Uh, depression seems to be more common than in illnesses like Alzheimer's disease, as well as anxiety and other syndromes like apathy. So we like to think about all these things in, in the context of, of what we can do to help the patient. Moving forward, can you speak a few words to what your goals are for the J. Oren Edson Family Louis Body Dementia Center and what it can do to advance care? The important part of what we do here is that we offer a very comprehensive approach to care. And we also make sure we hire staff, whether that be the physicians that work here, mid-level providers, we'll have counselors, social workers typically working in counseling roles, neuropsychologists. We make sure that every one of our employees really gets it. And what's the it? The it is passion about what we do, passion about how we manage patients, and passion for the outcomes we look for. And so we put together that team, and then we look at a very comprehensive approach to care. So that's different than what sometimes patients experience and families experience when they go in and they see a doctor, and the doctor may be quite astute in coming out with the diagnosis, well, this is dementia with Lewy bodies, here's some medicine, it's a bad disease, it'll progress, we'll see you in six months or a year. So at this center, which is similar to our Banner Alzheimer's Institute program at the Tool Family uh, Clinic. Uh, at both centers, we will offer a compassionate approach to care that looks at helping the patient and the spouse and family navigate through the disease. I mean, this is a very uh, distressing disease, as you, you know and you imagine, and we want to make sure that they get the help and assistance they need. So we have an entire family and community services that will work with the family, educate them, teach them how to better respond when things like visual hallucinations or sleep disturbance or misinterpretations come up, how to set routines. We, we also think about the other things that are important to keep people more physically mobile and engaged mentally, such as exercise, uh, need for physical therapy, try to get the patient to remain engaged socially and engaged in activities that may keep his or her brain stimulated. What gives you hope and what keeps you moving forward here as you look at your future with the Lewy Body Dementia Center and the Alzheimer's Center? Well, first of all, there's always hope that we may find some more definitive treatment. I mean, the treatments that we have help and they provide benefit, but we're really hoping that some of these diseases at some point might have a cure, or even if not a cure, something that slows the disease down. But at the same time, there's so much we can do to work on the patient's strengths and open up new possibilities for them to explore things they can still do. 
um, I had a discussion with the patient yesterday, and and he and his wife are going to go hiking. And I, I've seen Parkinson's in patients hiking before, and I just I usually stop and say it's a credit that you're doing this. And you know the old expression: you don't use it, you lose it. So we really want to keep people as active as they can be. When you see people that can achieve function. Uh, based on some of the interventions you're doing and achieve some quality of life and pleasure in life. That's really just something that, that drives us to continue to do the work we do. Dr. Alan Anderson is the director of the J. Oren Edson Family Lewy Body Dementia Center. It's part of the Banner Alzheimer's Institute. They began welcoming patients at the beginning of August. For the last three years, the Pasquayaki tribe has been advocating for the Pima County Recorder's Office to reinstate an early voting site on its reservation, going so far as to file a lawsuit against the Recorder's Office in 2020. AZPM's Emma Gibson says the county has now agreed to establish a site within the reservation. For the Pasquayaki leaders commemorating the settlement Monday, This moment is a celebration of tribal sovereignty and the future of their tribe. Chairman Peter Yocopicio is the head of the tribe. I am feeling very emotional right now. This has touched a place in my heart and for our people, you know, I I almost cried when they told us, hey, you are going to get restored your voting site. The settlement lays out that the tribe will have an in-person early voting site within its reservation, New Pasqua, for every statewide primary and general election from now till the end of 2024, when Pima County Recorder Gabriela Castros-Kelly's term ends. Her office also agreed to staff an early voting ballot drop box location, or if unstaffed boxes are adopted in the county, one of those. Our elders used to say we were never included at the table, and now we're included at this table to be able to vote. The two parties have decided to meet regularly and work together to increase voter engagement in New Pasqua, and they have until February 2022 to identify the location for the early voting site. About a month before the 2018 August primary election, the tribe was informed by the Pima County Recorder's Office, then run by F.N. Rodriguez, that the site was being closed. Recorder Casares-Kelly, Rodriguez's replacement, says she appreciates the tribe's willingness to work with her office and, quote, repair the damage. The closure of the Pascoyaki early voting site was another injury unfairly inflicted onto Native American voters. It sent a misleading statement to the Native American community that their votes are not valued. About a year ago now, as the 2020 election was on the horizon, the Pasquayaki Tribal Council started to fiercely advocate with the recorder's office to reinstate the early voting site. Recorder Rodriguez declined, standing by her initial reasons for closing the site, low voter turnout and a lack of IT and physical security. Because of our uh, security measures, technology, I was not able to make it a security site that is acceptable to me and the structure of our database. Her solution was for people to vote early at the Richard Elias Mission Library, 
It's between the Pascuayaki in New Pasqua and the Thana Atham in the San Javier district. Pascuayaki Council member Arminia Frias says, for those without cars in New Pasqua, the round trip to vote early went from a short walk to two hours by bus. What is the message that that sends to us? Doesn't our vote matter? We're a sovereign nation. By September 2020, Tucson Mayor Regina Romero and the Pima County Board of Supervisors supported the tribe's mission to regain its early voting site. Here's Chairman Yucopicio at a September 2020 meeting. We come here today to ask the Board of Supervisors to reconsider and please, please bring back our early voting. Recorder Rodriguez responded in a press release by reiterating the importance of security be it location security, ballot storage, or IT infrastructure. The release also suggested the Pasquayaki government finance the way for residents without cars to vote early by paying for services like Uber. In October, the tribe sued in one last attempt to get an early voting site in Dropbox before the election. Yucopicio called the closure, quote, tantamount to voter suppression and unconstitutional. Judge James A. Soto later ruled against their motion to get the site and box before the November 3rd election, saying the tribe should not have waited till mid-October to file the lawsuit, and that with a little over a week before the election, there wasn't enough time for the recorder to, quote, properly administer the election. While all of this was happening, Rodriguez was also planning to retire, and then-candidate Castro's Kelly was gaining momentum among voters. She committed to reinstating the site at a candidate discussion and recommitted to establishing the site after winning the election with nearly 59% of the vote. As a member of the Thana Otham Nation, she says she's the first Native American to hold an elected countywide office in Pima County. One of the first things that, that um, I plan on doing is reinstating the Pascua Yaqui, um early voting site. As of last Thursday, she upheld that promise and has continually educated people about the history of Native American U.S. citizenship, which wasn't permitted until 1924, and indigenous voting rights, which weren't approved until 1948, and couldn't be widely exercised until the 70s. Chairman Nicopicio reflected on his upbringing in the Yaqui community of Old Pasqua during Monday's news conference. And most of the people there were afraid to do a lot of things, including voting. He says his parents used to stress education as a, a way to get out of poverty. And when he was picking cotton on local farms, he would tell God, quote, there has to be a better way. And a lot of those better ways are exactly this, to give our members the right to vote, to teach the children how to vote and how to make a stand by voting. He expects since the average age of tribal members is around 20 years old, the Pascuayaki tribe is about to boom, and with it eligible votership. He says knowing the early voting site is coming, and with it better access to the ballot, reminds him future voters shouldn't be denied anything. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Emma Gibson. Last week, NPR reported on the passing of one of its most important journalists and broadcasters, Neil Conan. He was a remarkable man who had a remarkable career. 
Conan will be best remembered by our listeners as the host of the call-in program Talk of the Nation, where he delivered two hours of thoughtful and substantive conversation with guests and listeners every weekday. Joining me now is someone who knew Neil Conan when they were both working out of NPR headquarters in Washington, D.C., Arizona Public Media's acting news director, Duncan Moon. I really remember three things about Neil. Um, One, as you know, journalists very much like to tell war stories. I covered this story, and I was here, and I was there. Neil was never that kind of guy. Although he had, you know, he had covered wars and been captured by the Iraqis in the first Gulf War, you would never know that because he never sort of brought it up, and he never sort of bragged about what he did. And I always thought, that's something I want to emulate. I'd like to to be like Neil in that way, and was one of my first um, experiences with him. The second one was baseball. He was a terrific baseball fan, and like me from New York, a Yankees fan. So walking through the halls, there was that secret New York Yankees wink that we give each other and handful of other people. And uh, he would always stop and talk about them because he knew what was going on, not just at the at the major league level, but he knew what was going on at the farm level and who this kid was that was coming up. And uh, and he was passionate about it. It was something we could always talk about. Um, And mid-career, he took a break from NPR and went to broadcast a local, you know, low-level farm club baseball team in Maryland. He was the play-by-play announcer. And I thought, wow, what a risk. Mid-career, how are you going to go back to journalism after that? And of course, he came back and all of his years at Talk of the Nation were after that. So I always thought, that's something I would have liked to have done, but certainly didn't have the the courage to say, hey guys, I'm going to take six months to a year off, but I expect you to want me to come back. Of course, I wasn't Neil Conan either. Um, And the last one is he sort of taught me, be visual about radio. We were all getting out there and taught to listen several layers. What are you hearing? What are you hearing in the distance? What are you hearing close? What Get recordings of everything because you're going to want to mix that into a this tremendous pastiche of sound. You know, he agreed with that, but he said, get out there and look around. What are you seeing? You're going to need to write this. And because it's radio, you're going to need to paint a picture for your listeners. So make sure you're out there and you see what's going on. So later on, you can write about what you saw. Um, because it will make it visual, and once you've made it visual, the listener is yours. So it's something that he sort of taught me offhand that has been a part of all of my radio experience ever since. So I always, uh, when I think of Neil, I think of those three things. Well, for many years, I was the board operator during the daytime uh, programming here on KUAZ, and I would hear Talk of the Nation every day. I would have to listen to it. And with some hosts, you had a few seconds of leeway um, coming in and out of segments, but not Neil Conan. He called it pushing the post, he told me. He and his producer would purposefully try to hit that line as hard as they could each time. There was no mercy room coming in and out of of a Neil Conan break. He ran a tight ship on Talk of the Nation. But one of the things that I really enjoyed was the occasional times when he would make a reference not to baseball, but to comic books. I pretty quickly picked up on the fact that Neil was a fan. I noticed that he seemed to talk about Spider-Man more than others. And that was interesting to me because I knew that he had made cameo appearances in actual comic books. He was drawn as a character along with his uh, co-producer, Manoli Weatherall. They were drawn as characters in the X-Men comics about a dozen times. 
And uh, when I got a chance to interview him, it was back in 2013, and he was on his way to Tucson, and we did a uh, two-way through NPR, Master Control. So I wanted to play this excerpt for our listeners. It gives an example of Neil as a comic book fan, and it starts with me accusing him of being preferential to Marvel. Ah, well, you know, these days I grew up as kind of a Marvel guy, you know, very much. I was a charter member of the Merry Marvel Marching Society. <laughs> Excellent. At one point had that little acetate disc with the song on it and the, and the pin and, oh, yeah. and everything else. But, uh, yeah, make mine Marvel. In current times, it's, um, it, it's a little harder to pin down. I went through periods where I was intensely D.C., uh, through uh, some of the Batman stuff, uh, mm-hmm. uh, with the Neil Adams Batman stuff, and later uh, the Frank Miller Batman stuff, and you know, so there was one uh, publisher house, and it's Vertigo that I that I follow now. As I get older, I have problems with capes. <laughs> yeah, they get in the way. <laughs> you know, I finally feel I'm 17 now, uh-huh. and so so I can. Uh, so I, the the books I've been most interested lately, the one that's just wrapping up, is. Uh, Ex Machina, who's the the guy who uh, saved the second tower in New York and was elected mayor, and, and this is a, a series that's just winding up now. I loved uh, Why the Last Man. Um, I'm a big fan of fables. Mm-hmm. They don't wear capes, but they, they have magical powers. So right, that sort of stuff. I remember when you worked with the X Men. Yes, I have worked with the X Men. I'm very proud of that. Uh, yeah. I've covered the trial of Magneto in Paris and. Uh, uh, been on various adventures. I went to a party at Chris Claremont's house uh, a couple of months ago up in Brooklyn, and he introduced me as the person who'd saved the X-Men's butt a couple of times. <laughs> he was, oh man, when I was reading comics in the 70s, Chris Claremont, John Byrne, X-Men, that was the, the top that of the was, heap. That was really great stuff. He's trying to get uh, a hold into uh, writing uh, young adult novels now, so he can have a little more control over uh, his creations, an yeah. internal problem with comic book writers. Yeah, You know, you see a, a an adaption in animation or some other format, and as a comic book reader, you know it was clearly lifted from Days of sure. Future Past or something like that. But is Chris or, Claremont or, getting or, or, any or, recompense from that? Or you see The Dark Knight, and, you know, mm-hmm. they owe Frank Miller a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he got not dime one. Uh, or, you know, I was talking uh, every once in a while, we'd talk with Neil Gaiman on the show. Mm-hmm. And the Sandman is just one of the great creations of all time, and it's all him. Uh, but uh, he gets absolutely—he has no control over the character, and and uh, gets gets nothing out of it. Hmm. Well, Neil, I can't thank you enough for your time. It's just a pleasure to talk to you, Mark. Thanks very much, and I, I hope we'll see you at the concert. That was a never-before-heard excerpt from a conversation I had with Neil Conan in 2013, when he was preparing to visit Tucson to host an evening at Centennial Hall called Universe of Dreams. It blended images from the Hubble Space Telescope with live Celtic music. Neil Conan died last week, at age 71, on his farm in Hawaii. Fans from around the world, including his many friends and allies in the Marvel Universe, were saddened by his passing. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Thank you to Kathy's Vacuum and Sewing for their support of Arizona Public Media.